Welcome to the Policy and Planner English Podcast. I'm Helen Laban, and today we're discussing what a previous guest has dubbed the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, global budget systems. It's a policy rainbow. And here to help explain it, we have our guest. Lawrence Miller, and I've been working on designing a rural global budget model in Colorado. Lawrence was our first podcast guest, and I disclosed on that episode that he's also my husband. Good news, he's still my husband and still a healthcare policy consultant. He did throw his back out 30 seconds before this interview. Yes, I saw him immobilized and grabbed a microphone to get my questions in. So if he sounds pained and unhappy, that's why. He is not disgruntled about global budgets. Before he gives the opening definition, a quick note that Lawrence is working on rural global budgets for Colorado's hospital system. So where in Vermont we talk about different provider types in the ACO network, he focuses here on the hospitals. But as he will explain, that isn't a narrow focus more providers end up engaged in the system. Global budgets, in principle, are the notion that a hospital will get paid for a year's worth of services by different payers on a population basis. So it's a covered set of services for a covered group of people for a covered time period. It could include inpatient and outpatient services. It could also include care that might be paid for through the hospitals, but delivered by other practitioners. That's the question of defining the covered scope of services. We're focused on the rural hospitals for these budgets because they're facing particular pressures to innovate and build networked approaches to how they offer services. Changing the payment structure that they operate within will open the door to strategies for keeping up with those pressures. As things have become increasingly specialized, in medical care. Not all of those specialties can happen at a local hospital. So there's a need for people to get advanced treatment, to go to the larger medical centers. This has led to a change in what is considered core for a local hospital to be able to deliver. Occupancy rates have changed radically, and these are all good things. People get discharged much more quickly. So the things that hospitals used to need to do and used to get paid for have changed. Hospitals are key economic drivers for areas. When hospitals close, we see property values go down. We see businesses choose not to locate there. They're very important. Optimally, we'd like to see a hospital within Uh, the golden hour of the majority of the population so that people, when they're in distress, can get to an emergency department quickly enough to have appropriate intervention. We need, at this time as well, more substance use disorder beds. We need more dementia care as people are living longer. Hospitals have opportunities to reconfigure their operations, to change what service lines they deliver to what their communities are going to need most in the future. But it's very hard to do that in a fee-for-service environment when you have to just keep doing what you're doing to keep the lights on. To see how the global payment support change, we can look at the context of all the providers connected to hospitals. In a very, very simplified structure, you can think of a loop. Preventive care and primary care to help people before they need a local hospital visit. A trip to the hospital for something a bit more advanced a trip to a non-local specialist or an inpatient stay for a more advanced health problem, then back to the local hospital or primary care level for recovery, and then, hopefully, back to preventive care again. Like I said, very simplified. But here's how that fits together with global budgets, starting with primary care. 
One of the things about a global budget in the changes that it's designed to inspire or designed to facilitate is that the hospital is no longer tied to fee-for-service transactional activities. So it creates an incentive for care to be delivered at the best point, not at the point of greatest revenue. So it makes it more likely for a hospital to send a patient back to their primary care physician sooner because there's no extra revenue associated with keeping them in hospital-based physical therapy, for example. There's a benefit to that patient going and getting their physical therapy back close to home and with reduced transportation and with reduced expense. So it's, it's important that these incentives all be aligned between the primary care medical home, the hospital setting, and the specialist care. Think about it this way. We use the term primary care medical home to describe that primary care practice and the supporting elements that are there. And we use the term medical neighborhood to include the broader components of healthcare delivery. In another part of this neighborhood, we have the unavoidable fact that really expensive things also happen in medicine. Expensive things that our local hospital may not have capacity in their budget, equipment, or specialist skills to manage. In an earlier episode, we noted that these events are part of insurance risk. They're not something every day that you can manage for through a strong medical practice. We can manage these risks through tools like risk corridors or limits on the scope of services covered by the global budget, allowing some events to stay outside those annualized payments. You've got some services that might be excluded because they're outside of the scope of of the hospital, but might come through their doors. A complex burn patient might present at the emergency department before being transported to a burn center, and if they're local, come back and get some continuing local care throughout the rest of their recovery, not having to go back to to Boston every every week, for example. But that might be care that's excluded from a global budget because the risk component, the costs of that care outside what, what a reasonable risk corridor might look like. That's one example of things not covered. There are other more minor variations. Maybe a service is covered, but a specialist is needed to perform it, and the hospital decides to use outside specialists, not their own employees. That's outside the hospital's services, but within the services covered in the global budget contract. Or a service is covered, but you've got someone coming in from a non-covered population. That might be outside the budget. The global budget system makes adjustments along the way to manage these idiosyncrasies. What you're going to see in these arrangements is true-up techniques that are used throughout the year periodically to adjust what's been paid through the global budget. Because it is very important, once you've assigned a global budget to a hospital, you want to make sure that they are providing all of the services that you've contracted with them for. So if one of the patients that's attributed to that global budget goes somewhere else for services that are supposed to be included, that would be debited from the payment to the hospital. Similarly, the hospital isn't going to provide free services for patients who are not attributed, so they'll still charge fee-for-service for tourists and for other people who show up at their door who are not included in that patient panel for which they're getting paid. These are the adjustments at the edges. The point is that most things fall under the global budget. Okay, it's not literally global, but it needs to get close. 
Optimally, you want a global budget to get to a significant percentage of the hospital's budget so that management has the flexibility that the global budget isn't designed to provide so that they can make transformational changes. 75 to 80% of the budget would be the target, in my mind. For that to happen, it depends on where the hospital is located, who they need to recruit among payers. In many cases, they might be able to get there between Medicare and Medicaid. In other cases, they would need one or more commercial payers to also participate in order to get to that level. It's important to note that there is no standard Medicare global budget payment model at this time. I understand they're working on developing something, and that will create a foundation. The most notable global budget model that's in this country right now is in western Pennsylvania, and that is a mixture of Medicare, Medicaid, and commercial. I think it's fair to say, though, that there are other entities that function on a global budget basis. Kaiser Permanente, as an insurer, owns a lot of hospitals, owns a lot of the care delivery. So they have an integrated model where insurance risk and care risk are combined. That's also a way of looking at global budgets. Vermont does have early versions of global budgeting through our ACO. In our previous episode, Ina Bacchus reported that Medicaid pays participating hospitals in that format, but it's not hitting 80% of the hospital network's budget. So let's say we were all fully in global budget systems, the last stage in our current framework for payment reform. Does that mean that all of our healthcare problems would be solved? I think one of the things about global budgets, like all of the value-based payment arrangements we're working on, is that they're there to facilitate changes in the care model, improve delivery of health care. Payment reform is not healthcare reform. Healthcare reform is what happens between the practice and the patient, and the payment model is there to facilitate improvements in that event. It isn't health reform on its own. So a global budget should be put in place to facilitate a hospital changing its business model and improving the way it delivers services and even changing the services it delivers to its community. The differential between payment reform and larger healthcare reform is not as simple as saying first you have to do payment reform, then you have to do a lot of delivery changes, and then you'll have true reform. We've spoken in earlier episodes about the question of readiness, how some changes need to happen before providers can take on the risk of the next stage of payment change. There are also changes in healthcare delivery that are agnostic to the payment model. They can continue regardless of stage, often because they were already paid for outside of fee-for-service through mechanisms like grants. It's also true that payment reform isn't the same as payer reform, so it doesn't get to issues like whether health coverage should be government-funded. Similarly, changing the payer doesn't mean that you're making the payments within a more rational structure than before. If this were simple, someone would have solved it by now. But you know what more complexity means? It means more topics we can discuss on future episodes of the Policy in Plainer English podcast. 